talking about Hanukkah, and there's a lot of different uh, interesting information which I want to share with you, but I want to start off with a little joke. So which coffee hints to Hanukkah? Which coffee? So Nescafe. 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 <laughs> so Nescafe is the miracle of cafe of, of Kislev, the 25th of Kislev. Story that one of the rabbis in Israel says that one day he was sitting in a cafe in Israel and he was thinking about the state of Israel. Was the state of Israel a miracle or was the state of Israel it's a natural event? And uh, the waiter comes to him and asks him, Nes or Bots? Nes or Bots? You know, there's two kinds of coffee, the Nescafe and there's Bots, which is Turkish coffee. It's called Bots in Israel, which means the mud. And uh, he said, wow, that's my question exactly. Is the state of Israel a Nes or is the state of Israel a Bots? <laughs> so it's interesting. That was his question. The waiter asked him, Nes or Bots? Would you like to drink Nes or Bots? Anyway, Hanukkah is a very interesting holiday. It's actually... The last holiday the rabbis made for us, which is interesting. You think, you know, over the ages, rabbis will make more holidays, but it's that's the last holidays the rabbis made for us. So let's start by going through a little bit of history, a little bit of Jewish history. And we know that the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Let's go a bit further back. Abraham Avino, Abraham was born in 1813 BCE, 1813 BCE. The exodus from Egypt took place on 1313 BCE. And that's when we got the Torah. On 1313 BCE, we got the Torah. They entered Israel on 1273 BCE, which is 40 years later. And the story of the first temple was built on 833 BCE, and it lasted to 423 BCE. So it lasted for 410 years. The first temple lasted 410 years. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 423 BCE. Uh, the Persians uh, came and conquered the Babylon, and that's when the story of Purim took place in 356 uh, BC, BCE. 356 BCE, the story of Purim took place, and uh, the second temple was built straight, straight after the story of Purim, 353 BCE, and it lasted until 68 CE. The story of Hanukkah takes place in the middle of the Second Temple period. So at around 165 BC, the story of Hanukkah takes place around 165 BC. So we have to understand that the Persians were very, very good to the Jews. And probably because Esther was the queen and her son Darius, uh, the, the Darius II became the king of Persia. And he not only he encouraged the Jews to, to build the temple, and he donated money towards the building of the temple. The Persians did not affect us in the least in terms of our religion. They didn't try and push their religion on us, which of course they were idol worshippers. They let us worship God in our own way. They provided the money funds for the temple. They protected us. And unfortunately we had to pay taxes, but that was the least of our worries. So there was a, a period of peace under the, the Persians that lasted around 200 years. And that period of peace lasted until Alexander the Great from Macedonia and Greece. Can you imagine? The Persians conquered the world. Basically, the whole world was under the Persians, except for Europe. The whole world was under the Persians, and they had, it, they had the whole territory all the way from India, all the way, as the, as the Megillah says, from India all the way down Africa to Ethiopia. And then the next thing on their list was to conquer Greece. So they're amassing this massive navy in Egypt to conquer Greece. In the meantime, Alexander the Great conquered them, which is wild. 30,000 men, he, cross, he crosses, 
the sea and comes into Egypt and with 30,000 men only, he conquers this massive army. It wasn't just one army, it was many armies. The Persians had many armies in all the different territories they had conquered, they had another army. So the Persians, the Persians were defeated by Alexander the Great in a series of battles. The story is, legend goes, when he came to Israel, he wanted to conquer Israel because Israel refused to help him to conquer the Egyptians, the, the Egyptian Persian army. And they didn't want to get involved in the fight between the Persians and the Greeks. And he wanted to conquer Israel to teach them a lesson. On the way to Israel, he says, he had a dream in which he sees this holy man blessing him to beat uh, the, the Persians in a war. And uh, eventually what happens is the Israelis, the Jews in, Egypt, in Israel send a delegation led by Shimon HaTzadik, who was the high priest at that time. And when Alexander the Great sees these priests coming towards him, he gets off his horse and he bows down towards Shimon HaTzadik. And his men are astounded. Here is their king, this victorious general, bowing down to this Jewish priest. He said, what's going on, Alexander? He said, because this is the man I see every time I have a war. He blesses me the night before that I'm going to win the battle. So that's the reason why he bowed down to Shimon HaTzadik. And he eventually he spared the Jews from any burdens and he let them worship their own God. And in gratitude to him, we called all our children, all our sons, Alexander. And that's how Alexander became a Jewish name. Anyway, Alexander moves off and he goes to conquer the whole, the rest of Persia, he moves towards the east. In a, in a matter of a couple of years, three, four years, he conquers the whole of Persian um, empire. He gets to India and over there it says he dies of malaria. He dies of malaria, some other kind of disease. Unfortunately, he only leaves one little son. Imagine he's in his 30s, he conquered the whole world in a whirlwind of battles and he leaves a little son and um, Unfortunately, his generals, his three generals divided the empire between them. They killed the son and they, they divided the empire between them. And the is Israel was stuck between two great empires, the Northern Empire of, of Syria, Greater Syria, and the Southern Empire of Egypt. So the Ptolemies, the Ptolemies were the kings of Egypt and the Seleucid dynasty was the kings in Syria. So there was, Israel was between the Syrians and the Egyptian Greeks. And uh, they were conquered multiple times, go backwards and forwards. One, once they were conquered by the Syrians and then conquered by the Egyptians, I think seven times in a very short period of a hundred years or so, Israel went backwards and forwards between the Northern kingdom of Syria Greeks and the Southern kingdom of Egyptian Greeks. So it became like a ping pong. Israel was like a ping pong. Uh, the the uh, Egyptian Greeks especially were pretty much nice to Israel. They let them worship. They just wanted taxes. That's all. They left us alone. They wanted taxes. Unfortunately, they, they used Israel as a battleground because the two armies would always meet. Israel was the meeting point. So the Syrian Greeks would fight the Egyptian Greeks in Israel or try and go through Israel, use the passageway. And sometimes when they lost the war, they would take their vengeance on Israel. were retreating to Syria. They would take their vengeance out on Israel. Anyway. So Israel never had problems with the Syrians or the Egyptians. In fact, the Egyptians, uh, Ptolemy, one of the Ptolemies, the standard name, like Pharaoh was like a standard name. It was like a, it was a title, it wasn't a name, it was a title. So Ptolemies were the title of the Egyptian Greeks, the king of the Egyptian Greeks known as Ptolemy, the first, second, third, fourth. So one of the Ptolemies was very much into uh, literature and we're going to see the Greeks, in fact, were very much into literature, and he wanted to collect all the books in the world in his library in Alexandria. And one of the books he wanted very badly was the Jewish Bible. 
some reason he really wanted the Jewish Bible. He saw the Jews. He was interested in the religion, but he wanted the Israel Bible, the Jewish Bible in his in his library. He locks up 70 rabbis to make sure different rooms to make sure he's going to get an accurate uh, translation to Greek. He told them to, to translate the Bible into Greek. And it's today, it's there, it's called the Septuagint. Septuagint means the Septuagint is the Bible of 70 uh, translators. So it was uh, 70, it's known as the Bible of 70. Septuagint translated into Greek. And this Bible into Greek, actually the, the rabbis made a fast day. A fast day of 10th of Tevet is one of the reasons why we fast on the 10th of Tevet is because it was around that time that the Greeks had the Bible translated to Greek. And we mourn for that because now it, the Bible was not just translated, it was also mistranslated. There were certain di uh, differentiations they made in the Bible. Plus, it was now open to, to mistranslations and misinterpretations by the nations of the world. So the rabbis viewed that as a threat. And we see what happened was that different religions came cropping out of the Bible, our Bible. So Christianity and uh, Islam are based on our Bible. Christianity directly on our Bible. The Old Testament, what they call the Old Testament is our Bible. But it's based on the Greek translation so that all the errors of the greek translations and uh, all the errors of the greek translations crept into our bible and from our the greek bible it got translated to latin from latin it got translated to english so you see how many discrepancies along the way you can imagine hebrew to greek greek to uh, greek to latin latin to english if you read the king's james version of the bible which is the english version of our bible you'll see all the mistranslations and all the mistakes in the bible based on these different translations so there's a lot of different uh, variations. And then, of course, then you have all the commentaries where the Christians had commentaries on our Bible and the Muslims rewrote the whole Bible. Instead of the Bible, it's called the Quran. So the Christians at least did not rewrite our Bible. They took it as it is and with their, their translations. Uh, but the Muslims, unfortunately, Muhammad rewrote our Bible. So he, he wrote it as a Quran. The Quran starts with the birth of Adam, just like our Bible, the creation story, Adam, Chava, everything rewritten as in his own uh, in his own version so he our bible became a different version of the quran but that's the difference between the greeks and the christian uh, sorry the the uh, muslims and the christians the muslims have a new text completely whereas the christians relied on our text and that's the advantage that christianity has over islam christianity is based on the old testament therefore christians interested will look back at the old testament and see where the roots are maybe he'll reject his uh, his beliefs and come back to the real source because he has the real source whereas the muslims don't have the real source they just have the quran a rewriting of the bible so they don't have a real source to rely on anyway so today's topic i want to talk about basically is the clash of civilization because that's what it was um this battle between israel and the greeks wasn't really the greeks it was the syrian greeks was really a battle of civilizations. It was a, it was a battle of more than just of cultures. And this, I think that's the reason why the rabbis made it as a last holiday, because this last holiday really applies today as well. This last holiday applied through the generations, wherever we were in a strange culture, we had culture clashes, which culture are we gonna adopt? Are we gonna adopt the superior civilization of the time, which in our time we saw science took over in the fifties, especially many Jews, we're leaving Judaism, believing you know the science is going to take over. Science is the cure-all, and we don't have to worry about God because now we're in the hands of science. And unfortunately, we see what happened. Nothing really major. Um, some nothing really good came out of that. They had the atom bombs, and we have uh, nuclear warfare and other kinds of warfare now because of technology. 
and hopefully we'll get this vaccine. Something good will come out of this technology. Hopefully we'll get a vaccine. Uh, but we don't know what caused the troubles in the first place. Was it science? Was it an accident? We don't know for sure what would happen. Anyway, so we have this battle through the ages, and that's why it's interesting because Hanukkah always falls on this parasha, which is the parasha of Vayeshev and Miketz, usually Miketz, but this year it's on Vayeshev, which is a story of Yosef. So what's the connection between Hanukkah and Yosef? And the answer is our title, the clash of civilizations, the clash of culture. Yosef always says that I am an Ivri. I am an Ivri, I am an Ivri. And the Egyptians always called him the Ivri. Uh, so what do you mean Ivri? So there's two different explanations of the word Ivri. Number one is Ivri from the language, from the descendant of Ever. Shem had a son called Ever, and we are the sons of Shem and Ever. So Ever was our forefather, so we call ourselves the Ivrim, the Hebrews, Ivrim. And the second answer is a, a very interesting psychological answer and also a clash shows us the class of civilizations the idea that ever comes to the word across the river we come from across the river jordan now wherever we went in canaan at that time in egypt at that time it was we were known as the foreigners from across the river so ivri can also be a foreigner from across the river the egyptians always talked about yosef as the ivri is the foreigner he is from abroad he is from across the river and so therefore Yosef had to deal with this clash of cultures. He had his father's culture, he had his belief system, and he had to go and move to Egypt. Unfortunately, he had to be, he was sold into Egypt, he was forced into Egypt, and he had to decide which culture is he gonna adopt. And he decided to live as a Jew in Egypt. And that's really the story of Hanukkah. Which value system are we gonna adopt? Are we gonna adopt the dominant culture of the time, which at that time was Greece? Or we can adopt our own culture. And that was the fight that was going on behind the scenes between the Maccabees and the Greeks. Now, it wasn't just a fight. This is very surprising. It wasn't just a fight between the Maccabees and the Greeks. It was a, a fight between the Hellenists, the Jewish Hellenists, and the religious Jews. This is something which people don't really talk about. It was more a civil war. In fact, the Hellenist Jews, who had, who had thought that you know Greek system was much more superior, we're going to talk about the different ideas of, of the Greek culture. And they believe the Greek culture is much more superior than the culture they had. Just like many Jews through the ages left Judaism and thought they're going to go to a superior culture. Many Jews became Christians over the ages. Many Jews became scientists. Many Jews became Unitarians. Many Jews became Americans. And they dropped their Jewish culture and identity because they thought they're moving into a superior culture. And just that was the start. The start of this was really an, in Hanukkah's story. The first time that Jews really believed they were in a superior culture was at the time of Hanukkah. They really believed that Greece offered a superior way of living, superior way of life, which we're going to talk about why. And they thought that the culture of the Greeks was much more, uh, let's say, uh, enjoyable. So many of the wealthy Jews, including, unfortunately, many of the high priests, many of the priests in the Beit HaMikdash, in fact, they set up their own gymnasium in the, in, around the Beit HaMikdash. They set up a gymnasium of priests. Why? Because they were enamored by this modern culture. They were very highly intellectual. Uh, Jews always knew how to read, and they knew the Greeks appreciated wisdom. Now, there's an interesting midrash which is brought down by the Ramah, Raboshi Isilis, who is uh, one of the uh, Ashkenazi poskim on the Shulchan Aruch. And he writes over there that the Greek science and Greek culture and Greek wisdom was actually uh, given to them by the Jews. That they, was, they heard about King Solomon, and they sent 
emissaries to King Solomon to see his wisdom. And they brought back his books and the Greeks study the books of King Solomon. And a lot of their philosophies are based on Shlomo Melech. Interesting, very interesting, this idea. They learned math from Shlomo Melech. They learned philosophy from Shlomo Melech. They learned uh, science from Shlomo Melech. They brought it back to Greece and they studied it. And they excelled in this kind of wisdom. But the only thing they left out was one God. One God, basically. They left out this concept of one God. So I want to talk a bit about this uh, culture clash, if we want. Culture clash. But what's interesting is Greece already appears in the Torah. Um, the descendants of Noah. So we know Noah had three sons. Sheb, Ham, and Yefet. Yefet was known as, uh, what well, his name actually suggests, Yofi. Yefet comes from Yofi, which is beauty. And uh, Yefet was the father of Yavan. Interesting. So Yavan is Greece. Yavan was the son of Yefet. And the Bible, the Torah, the commentaries all talk about Yefet as being, in fact, the highest level that Yefet can get is Yefet should dwell in the tents of Shem. Why? Because Yefet should be the one to design the beauty of Shem, which is Abed Mikdash. That they should use the, the engineers, the architects of Yefet, and he should use his knowledge to build us our buildings, to build us our beautiful Abed Mikdash. Interesting that the beauty of Yefet, the highest blessing would be the, the beauty of Yefet should dwell in the tents of Shem. So the Bible is not denigrating Yefet. It's just telling us that Yefet should be used um, for the beauty of the tents of Shem, which is interesting, to use their gifts for God and not use their gifts anti-God. So let's just talk about that. So it's interesting, Yefet already was the son of Noah. His son was Yavan, which is Greece. So Greece is a descendant of uh, Noah's son, Yefet. We, Jews, are descendants of Shem, the first son. Shem, Ham, and Yafet. So we are descendants of Shem, they're descendants of Yafet. Canaan was a descendant of Ham. So we moved to Canaan. The Rashi says over there that the land of Canaan was given to Shem. And in fact, Shem's son, Malchi Tzedek, lived in Canaan. He was the king of Shalem, of Yerushalayim. And his daughter, very topically in this week's parasha, was, Rashi says, Tamar. Tamar who married Yehuda, had children with Yehuda, was the daughter of Shem. Interesting. Tamar was the daughter of Shem. And that's where the Mashiach comes from. The Mashiach comes from Tamar and Yehuda. So that makes sense. Why does it come from Tamar? Tamar, who's, whose daughter was she? And the answer is she was Shem's daughter. The, the Canaan was given to Shem and his descendants. The Canaanites, who were descendants of Ham, came and conquered it from Shem. So God, what God did is he gave it back to Abraham, who was the descendants of Shem. So for many generations, Shem was living in Israel all the time. Shem was here, with, and the yeshiva of Shem and Ever was, was here in Yerushalayim. And the Canaanites came and conquered the surrounding territory from Shem. And God is just giving it back to Shem by giving it to Abraham and his descendants. So we did not steal it from Canaan. In fact, they stole it from us, and God just gave it back to us. Anyway, that's interesting background over here. So Yavan comes from the son of Yefet. And for many years, they were, they were split. If you look at the history of Greece, they were split into many different parts, city-states. And uh, interesting that uh, Alexander the Great comes from Macedonia. And today, Macedonia is a very poor country. It's a very poor country, the north of Greece today. And Macedonia, under Philip, the father of Alexander, conquered the rest of Greece. And he made Greece into one country. So Alexander took over one country, Greece, and he made a new system of warfare called the phalanx, uh, where they could fight on all four sides. They could, uh, the army could 
fight in any direction. They could uh, move around and fight as a, as, a, as, a, as a square. So there was no back and no front. It was all front, it was all frontal. So this way, normally when you want to attack an army, you go from the rear. There's no rear in the Greek uh, phalanx. Everything was forward, everything was inside. It was in, they encircled the inside of their camp and uh, they would fight on all the sides. So therefore they couldn't be outflanked and they couldn't be uh, taken uh, from the rear. So that was the secret of uh, Alexander's success, his new method of warfare. And he could fight armies which were bigger than his, many times bigger and beat them, interesting. So what happened was Alexander just takes over. He just goes right through, smashes the whole Persian empire, Persian army and conquers the whole empire in a few years. He himself dies, his, his kingdom is split into three parts and uh, the different generals, three different generals take over his kingdom. The two that concern us were the Northern Kingdom of Syria and the Southern Kingdom of Egypt. So the great, the great Greek empire would last no longer than Alexander's brief life. We see over here the futility of events. Here he is. His heyday was, was like five years, five years empire. That's how long it lasted. And then it split into three parts. His own son was killed, imagine. He couldn't, he couldn't pass his empire down to his children. Never had. His one son was killed by the Greek, by the generals. So Ptolemy inherited Egypt. Seleucus inherited Syria and parts of Mesopotamia, which is Iraq. And Israel found itself caught in the middle of these two great empires. The Seleucid state with its capital in Syria to the north and the Ptolemaic state with its capital in Egypt to the south. And, Egypt, and Judah is in the middle and it's conquered by one and then it's conquered by another. And in a, in a very short time, it was changed hands like seven times. Now, what's interesting is the Greeks wanted to, they, they knew about the Roman threat. Rome was just starting. Rome was just starting and people were hearing about this threat of the Romans and the Greeks were scared of the Romans and, and you know, had good cause to be scared. The Romans were the next big power, the big superpower of Rome. So the Syrians, especially the Romans were coming and trying to attack the Syrian Greeks at that time. And so the Syrian Greeks under Antiochus wanted to make their empire, they solidify the empire from many different cultures, from many different uh, languages and make it all one big Greek empire. And so what they did is that that was the first time that anyone in the world had tried to change people's religions. The first time in the world history because the pagans basically were very generous, you know. You worship your gods, we worship our gods, we'll make your gods our gods, we'll, you will make your, our gods your gods. They're very generous in terms of religion. So you can do what you want, we'll do what I want, we'll, we'll take some from you, you'll take some from us. And the Greeks wanted everyone to be like them. They wanted to learn their culture, they wanted to learn their history, wanted to learn their philosophies, wanted them to learn their language. Everyone had to learn Greek, everyone had to be culturally Greek as well. Now this did not sit well with the Jews. And we're going to talk about big differences between the two. But the truth is, most of the Greeks left the Jews alone. It was only one king, Antiochus IV, um, who really tried to push Greek culture and religion down our throats. And that's when the Jews revolted. So pay taxes, no problem. But you interfere with our religion, that's when we get tough. That's when things get really tough. And we'll see this also happened under the Romans as well. To pay their taxes, okay, but for them to interfere in our temple and put their statues, that's something which is too much for us. So this happened twice in our history. Number one was under the Greeks, 
and second under the Romans. And in both cases, there was a massive revolt. Well, maybe not such a massive revolt, but a revolt. And uh, we fought twice in our history. Under the Greeks, we won. And under the Romans, we lost big, big time. And we ended up in Galut, 2,000 years of Galut, because of the Roman wars. They smashed us entirely. They smashed Israel completely. You see, you go across the green line today, and you'll see what the Romans did. You'll see the brown stones covered landscape. That's what the, how the Romans left Israel for thousands of years. Anyway, so the Greek culture and Greek empire was something which the Jews never faced before in our history. And uh, so the rise and spread of Greek civilization affected the course of the non-Jewish world as no other historical force. Greek culture and philosophy formed the foundation of much of what is today known as Western civilization. In fact, the Romans never had a civilization. Their civilization is based on all their cultures from the Greeks, all their ideas and their, and their architectures from the Greeks. So the Greeks really, uh, our Western civilization is based mainly on Greek culture and their Greek civilization. So that is amazing concept. So more overwhelming than the political or military threat which the Greeks posed was the spiritual threat. Jewish allegiance to the Torah was challenged as at no other time. Greek values often clashed with the Jewish ideal. And the infiltration of Greek culture and ideas set the stage for one of the most intriguing chapters of Jewish history. Okay, so we saw tremendous assimilation under the Greeks, tremendous civil assimilation. And this is what started, started under the Greeks and it continued through the ages under the Christians and under the today's Western civilization where there's 50% assimilation rates, tremendous assimilation rates, we're losing the obituary column of the New York, uh, the obituary column of the New York Times is really the column of weddings for the Jewish people. That's the obituary column of the Jewish people. The wedding column of the New York Times, you see the names and you'll see one Jew, non-Jew, 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 Jew, non-Jew, Jew, non-Jew, that's the obituary column of, of the Jewish people. So tremendous rates of assimilation. It started under the Greeks. This started under the Greeks. It never started under the Babylonians because the Jews always considered them superior. It never started under the Persians, even though Esther was one of the few. And it started under the Greeks. Assimilation started under the Greeks. So Jews never attempt to assimilate into inferior cultures. The, the pressure for assimilation always exists and is strong when what the Jews consider an equal or superior culture is involved. Therefore, the Jews did not assimilate in Babylon because they viewed it as an inferior culture. There was no temptation. And similarly, it says in Egypt, now think about it, in Egypt, before Judaism even started, there were Hebraics, there were Ivrim. There, no, there, no, there was no Bible, there was no Torah. And they still did not assimilate in Egypt. It's amazing. Because they didn't view Egyptian culture as superior. So, and that's why it says Jews who lived in Germany wanted to be a Schiller or a Gothi or a Frederick the Great. It was an attraction because the Jews considered an advanced culture. So whenever they, th they thought it was an advanced culture, they wanted to assimilate. When they looked down on the culture, they don't assimilate. So they really looked up to the Greek culture. So the first time the Jews not only encountered a culture that provided an alternative, on the surface at least provided a superior culture. Well, they thought it was a superior culture. That is why there was a big Hellenistic movement among the Jews. So what is the draw? Number one, Greek philosophy. And that's one of the most um, famous aspects of culture of the Greek philosophy. And it's, uh, it's an oversimplification, but the purpose of philosophy is try to explain life logically. 
As such, it is like sleeping in a bed with a blanket that's a little too short. Something is always sticking out. And there's never been a philosophy that answered all the questions. So trying to answer the questions of life, and there's never been a philosophy covers all the answers all the questions of life. In our time, the value of philosophy has declined, and we are more interested in technology. We're more interested today in the how rather than the why. We send our kids to school. Hopefully, they're they're not just thinking about life. They also quite to think how to build a better computer, how to make more money, how to design a more obsolete car. Um, the idea of sitting 30 years and contemplating the nature of life is not very appealing in our time. Yet for thousands of years, that was the ultimate job. The highest level of uh, a, a person can attain in those days was a philosopher. The highest level you could attain was to be a philosopher. And in Greece, the philosophers basically made society. So that's why it says, even the Rambam, the Rambam was put in harem by the French rabbis. Why? Because of his admiration for Aristotle. He admired Aristotle, who he considered half a prophet. Aristotle is so smart, so wise. Rambam uh, always, in his, at least in his guide for the perplexed, always quotes Aristotle. And the French rabbis did not like that. Why is he quoting this, uh, this, Greek, uh, this Greek philosopher? Rambam considered the Greek philosopher a very high level of advanced philosophy. And he quoted him. When he thought he was right, he quoted him. He doesn't always agree with him. He couldn't agree with him because his idea of the universe was totally different from the diametrically opposed to the Jewish idea of the universe, which we're going to discuss a little bit. So where did philosophy begin? Judaism traditionally says it started with King Solomon, Shlomo Melech. If you learn the book of Kohelet, it's all about the philosophy of life, which, by the way, is pretty tragic. And that's where the Greeks got their tragedy from. The philosophy of life in Kohelet is tragic until the very last sentence. Everything is vanity, everything is vanity, everything is worthless, everything is air, hevel, until you get to the last line, the end of the matter is, keep his commandments, because that is the secret to a successful and happy life. Uh, bringing God into the picture is a secret of a successful life. It's interesting, so the Greeks never had that, which we're going to talk about. So the first book of philosophy, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, it takes all the other philosophies of the time. It talks about hedonism, talks about fatalism, it talks about Epicureanism, and draws them out to its ultimate illogical conclusion. He examines all the possible philosophical answers that exist in the world and does away with each one of them, one after the other. So it's interesting, he plays, Shlomo Melech in his book, uh, plays devil's advocate for every philosophical theory. He describes it, he sometimes seems to indulge in it, eventually pulls back and says, this is also vanity. This is also, doesn't answer the question. And he tells you why it doesn't work. Um, and uh, even the best philosophy. So he plays devil's advocate. Shlomo Melech played devil's ad ad advocate for every philosophical theory and eventually pulls out and he shows its fatal flaws. So, and the end of Shlomo Melech's skeleton ends off with belief in God. And that's where the, diff the big difference between the Greek philosophies and Judaism is Greek philosophies do not end off with this belief in God that we have. They end off with a belief in intellect. They believe in science and they believe in fate. Fate. So some people's fate is good. Some people's fate is bad. It's a fatalistic culture. Fatalistic culture. So we they are descendants of Yavan. And after... After uh, the Greek uh, empire, we said, split into three parts. The Jews 
had many things about the Greeks that they hated. I just want to talk about different parts of the, of the Greek philosophies. Number one is we believe in one God and the Greek gods especially were a very offensive <laughs> because we believe in a very moral God, a very good God and their gods are immoral and devilish and mischievous and everything bad, very offensive. And number, that's number one. Number two, in a society originally opposed to the exposure of the body, the Greek practice of wrestling in the nude and dressing in light must have been appalling. And in a religion that specifically singles out homosexuality as a crime, the Greek attitude and even preference for male homosexuality must have been incomprehensible. So Greek culture, on the one hand, would tempt the Jews with the theories, with their science, with the philosophy. On the other hand, with the behavior, it was sickening. It was sickening to the Jews, but eventually, like everything else, to get used to something. And so how the Jews reacted is very much a part of God's plan. The rise and spread of the Greek civilization affected the course of the non-Jewish world as perhaps no other historical force. And this was the spiritual threat to the Jews. And that's something which we're going to talk about. The beauty and the beast. The beauty of the beast that the Greek philosophy was aesthetics. Aesthetics, beauty is always the high, most highest praised value in the Greek society. Beauty, physical beauty. If you look at their buildings, the buildings are tremendously beautiful. Their temples outmatched any temples of, the, of that era. Even the Jewish temple at that time, until Herod built a brand new temple, the, the Jewish temple was a small affair built by the exiles who came back from Babylon, nothing to boast about and nothing to compare to the Greek temples. So we had uh, two different parts. We have the part that uh, the aesthetics of the Greeks was tremendous, the philosophy of the Greeks was tremendous, the beauty of the Greeks was amazing. And on the other side, their morality was questionable, their, their religion of different gods, of mischievous gods, immoral gods was disgusting and their mores and their morals were disgusting. So some Jews, uh, succumbed to the good parts of the Greek culture and adopted their Greek uh, systems. And a lot of Jews were disgusted by the Greek system and they rebelled against the Greeks. So that's basically it. That's basically the, the synopsis in a very short time. I just want to go through more details. Um, so what are the differences? Number one, Judaism says one guy. Hellenism says there's gods, there's goddesses, and there's no limits to gods and Number two is we believe in a good God, a moral God. They believe in their gods were mischievous. They're very, very mischievous and immoral and uh, robbers and thieves and murderers and adulterers. Their gods matter. We believe that only there's one God who created everything, that God is actively involved in ruling the world. The Greeks believe in a multitude of gods. For each object or state of nature, there's a different God or goddess. Right? So there's a God of love, there's a God of sea, the God of the earth, God of this, God of that. And we find this, that uh, many people through the ages have made this mistake. That Cicero, for example, Cicero made a mistake. He says, I couldn't beat God. God is the God of the water. He, he beat the Egyptians in water. He didn't beat the Egyptians on dry land. So God is the God of water. Whereas Titus said the opposite. He said, yeah, he said the same thing. He said when he was in, the, he conquered Israel, he conquered the second temple. And when he got on his boat with all the treasures, there was a massive storm. He says, God, now I know you are the God of the sea. You're not the God of land. So God says, you know what? I'm going to teach you a lesson. I have a little insect which is going to go into your brain and cause you tremendous sarot. And he died with this infestation of his brain. Something went into his brain. 
um, and he died of that. So why? Because he, he decided that God was the God of the sea. But so that's what the pagans did. They divided God into different parts. This is the God of the trees, the God of the land, God of the sea, God of the other things. And uh, we believe that God is one. So that is a very big difference. And there's only one God. Um, also, man, the Jewish view of divine is that God has no physical form. So even though the Torah talks about God in human terms, God is a jealous God. Or he took us out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. They're all metaphors. And one of the 30 principles of faith, which we say every day, is in guf and or demutakuf. And we say this in the Igdal. God has no body. God has no shape. There's nothing physical about God. You cannot. And by giving God a body, you already limit God. Because for every physical form has a limit. Whereas God is unlimited. God is, and to talk about a physical body limits God. The Greek gods were almost all conceptualized as humans with supernatural powers. Not only did they possess the same physical image as humankind, but they even had human lusts and passions. Greek mythology is filled with images of gods fighting, jealousy, rivalries, plotting against one another, uh, pursuing human lovers. In fact, numerous gods in mythology are born out of God-human relationships, uh, which is uh, not very far from Christianity. Maybe that's where they got it from. By creating gods who are spoiled and egocentric as humans, okay, human beings can negate the will of a god by saying it was the will of a rival god. So now a person can choose which god they want and always say they're worshipping one of the gods. In other words, there's no morality. It becomes a, it's an amoral society. I'm doing this because it's right by this god. I'm doing this because it's right by the other god. There's no morality. There's no ethics. And... Uh, the next big issue was the beauty of balance. Judaism views the physical body as a partner of the soul, right? We got to, it's walking a tightrope. Judaism is walking a tightrope. It's like a fiddle on the roof, right? Walking this tightrope on the roof. And uh, we have to always balance our lives between our physicality and our spirituality. Humankind was created from the physical and from the spiritual. Hashem formed the human being out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Torah tells us embrace so this dual level of creation didn't distinguish humans from animals. Animals don't have the spiritual side. And from angels, because the angels never had a physical side. We have both. And so therefore we have free will. We're pulled in both directions and we have to try and find the balance. And this balance is what Judaism considers to be beauty. Beauty is this free choice that we have. And that gives our, our ability to choose and synthesize the physical and spiritual parts of life. And that is what the Rabbam calls the golden mean, the golden mean in life. That is, he says the golden mean is to always have the center of both extremes. So eating, person can have a golden mean in eating, not to eat too much, not to eat too little. Um, generosity and being miserly. A person got to find the balance because one is a spiritual thing, one is a physical thing. We're pulled in both directions by our spiritual says, give more. And the physical says, what about you? And that's what Hillel sums it up. If I'm not for myself, who am I? I'm sorry, who will be for me? And if I'm for myself, what am I? So on the one hand, I got to help other people, but then who's going to look after me? On the other hand, I got to look after myself, but then who's going to look after other people? So I've got to be, I've got to find this medium path in life. A person's got to find this medium path in life. That's the beauty of Judaism, finding this medium path in life between the body, the soul, the synthesis, between the physical and the spiritual. And so that's that's a Jewish view, whereas the Greek view placed the highest value on the physical 
and gave the world the idea that beauty itself is a supreme ideal. Now it's interesting, because if you look at the Torah, you'll find that Sarah is called a beautiful woman. In fact, that's why it says two kings kidnapped her. Uh, Rivka is called a beautiful king, uh, woman. She was kidnapped by uh, one king, right? And Rif, uh, Rachel is called beautiful. She's called beautiful on both sides, spiritually and physically. So Judaism does not denigrate the beauty. It does not denigrate beauty. The Talmud talks about the most beautiful women in the world, which uh, to count Abigail, who is one of King David's wives, Rahab, uh, the, the wife of Joshua, eventually, and uh, Esther, of course. So he talks about these things. Why does he talk about these things? He says, why? Because beauty is not something to be denigrated. Beauty is a value, but put in context. Beauty without context is worthless. Beauty put into a nice ethical Torah view, spiritual, spiritual context, is a very valuable uh, mechanism, but beauty, which is unleashed, with the, as uh, we say in Eshechai, right? So beauty by itself, winning a beauty contest by itself is worthless, like Solomon says. But beauty with your Shemaim, that's the goal. The goal is to have beauty with your Shemaim. So the Greeks place beauty as the most highest value, but obviously no your Shemaim because they never had a God. They had all these different crazy gods. So they epitomized the worship of the physical. So you have Greek passion for athletics. So today we have the Olympics. Olympics was the god Olympia. It's the worship of the god Olympia, which is a god of beauty, which is interesting today. The whole world takes part in the Olympics, including Israel. And we even distorted this whole idea of the Maccabean Games. Right? The Maccabean Games, the, the Maccabees must be rolling in the, in the grave. Maccabean Games is anti Maccabees. Why? Because the games are based on Greek culture. Why? It was the show of the body. Who is the strongest, most beautiful body? And uh, that was athletics. It's based on the worship of the physical. Among the first actions they did in every conquered city was to build gymnasiums. Gymnasium. And they were held in the nude to highlight the beauty of the human being. In fact, many Jews at that time took part in reverse um, plastic surgery to reverse their Brit Milah. They wanted to show they were non-Jews. They wanted to show they were Greeks. Anyway, the physical glorification, one example of the Hellenistic view of nature as supreme. The attitude the greatness of the human being ruled over the belief in the power of their gods. In other words, gods created us and now we take over. We are now gods. We are now little gods. And in Plato's view, there was a divine creation and the world was left to run by itself. That was a little bit, some people say that was Einstein's view as well. God created the world and just walked away. He didn't have to bother, he didn't have to bother with us puny creatures. Judaism says, no, God created the world and is actively involved in the world. And that's why we celebrate Pesach. It's interesting, there's no, Rosh Hashanah celebrates the beginning of the world, but it's not really, the oral law makes it more into a day of judgment as opposed to celebration of creation. Interesting. We don't want to focus on God creating the world because then people say, oh, God created the world and he walked away. No, God created the world and now he's worried about us. He's judging us. In other words, he's very much involved in what we're doing in the world. The Greeks, Plato believed that God created the world, but God walked away. And that's a big difference between us and other cultures is how much is the involvement of God in the world. So in order to understand the Hanukkah story, it's very necessary to understand the differences between the two cultures. And these differences create a clash of cultures. The Greeks could not understand why the Jews did not instantly embrace their culture, which catered to humans' physical desires. There was no need to control yourself. 
Uh, the Greeks uh, had no self-control. They had no need to control themselves. They could do whatever they wanted. There's no ethics. There's no morals. You do whatever you get away with. Basically, you could do whatever you get away with. So why did the Jews not accept it? Why? It's such a great idea. Why do we have to be, um, what do you call it? Uh, the same, same idea, this concept of freedom that uh, Freud. The similar idea of freedom, that if you control yourself, it leads to psychosis. The Greeks said, listen, why are these Jews are causing psychosis themselves by controlling themselves so much? They can't eat this, can't eat that, can't do this, can't do that. So they couldn't believe that the Jews would not accept their, their, their culture straight away. Three things really angered Antiochus. Now, it's interesting, because Greek system is based on philosophy, is based on logic. And if you can prove logically that something is necessary, okay, they go along with it. But if there's nothing you can prove logically, Greeks say, oh, sorry, we don't believe in that. So what angered the Greeks the most were mitzvot that were not based on logic. Illogical mitzvot. What we call chukim, laws with no reasons like kashrut. Kashrut has no reason. If you say kashrut is because of living healthy, you see many Jews have heart problems, many Jews, religious Jews have overweight, and many Jews are this. You cannot say that kashrut has a reason of health. There's no health reason in kashrut. You see, the non-Jews have the same health problems that we have. Uh, we're not living better health-wise than anyone else. So it can't be kashrut for health. There's no logical reason for kashrut. So the Brit the, Milah, there's no, even though some people want to say it's more hygienic and less disease, whatever it is, today you'll find many non-Jews living very well into their late, un, uncircumcised. So, so there's no real rational reason for circumcision. Um, there's no real rational reason for Shabbat. Okay, you, there's a day of rest. Okay, it's uh, reasonable. That's very reasonable. But why should all your slaves rest? Why should the whole society shut down? Shemitah, which is next uh, after Rosh Hashanah. Why does the whole society, all the agriculture society uh, shut down for a whole year? It's crazy. So these things did not have any logical reason behind them. They're all based on laws from our God. And those mitzvot are the ones that really angered Antiochus the most. Antiochus was trying to inculcate his Greek culture and his empire, and the Jews were not accepted. So he took his vengeance on mitzvot that did not make any rational sense. Those were the ones that he really uh, aimed for, and therefore he passed laws. Jews are not allowed to have Rosh Chodesh. Right? The lunar month, when the, when the sun, when the, uh, the moon keeps reappearing, and the, the moon disappears, the moon comes back. So basically we're saying that we believe in a God, not the moon, because the moon disappears. Whereas if you believe in the sun, that's no problem. The sun never disappears. There's no room for God in a, in a sun-driven society. In fact, uh, people worship the sun. The sun was a very... And when we went to the Beit HaMikdash, you bowed towards the west, not towards the east. All the pagans bowed towards the east. We bowed in the Beit HaMikdash. The, the Holy of Holies was in the west, not in the east. So all the Jews bowed towards the west to show we don't bow to the sun. All the pagans come in to the Beit HaMikdash. Hey, you're bowing in the wrong direction. Yeah, we bow away from the sun. You know, there's many Ashkenazi today, also in Ashkenazi synagogues, they try not to put the, the uh, they don't bow towards the east, they put their Arona Kodesh on the east. Because of that reason, the sun's in the east and many people bow to the east. As far as we, we always put this, uh, in the west, you put the Teva in the east, you put the Hechal in the east, because uh, you want to bow towards Yushalayim. So there's a little bit of dichotomy over here. But uh, most people today don't bow down to the sun. Okay, so that's the reason. So, that's one thing which irked the Greeks was this idea of 
the moon calendar. The moon calendar as opposed to the sun calendar. The sun's all powerful, the sun is a god. We don't believe in the solar calendar, we want the lunar calendar. The Shabbat, six days you will work and do all your labor, seven days Shabbat for God. In other words, what's the logical reason? It's for God. And the seven days for God. It's a, it's a Shabbat where we think about God. The Greeks did not have a problem with their rest. But their culture was based on creativity. So in a sense, rest is the opposite of their ideal. ideal their ideal was creativity, and our ideal is rest. Very strange for them. In fact, um, they called us very lazy. Jews are very lazy people. Why? They take a day off. It's amazing. So, uh, so we can't win. You know, Some people say yeah, we're very industrious people because we only have one day off. Uh, other people say, no, we're very lazy because we do take a day off. But uh, interesting. So through their marvelous creations, the Greeks proclaimed their might over the world. So they really proclaimed this idea that humanity is in charge of the world. Humanity rules the world. The idea of taking one day to let God run the world negated the Greek belief in their own control. So Greeks believe we control the world. When you take a day off and you have your God, believe in your God, he's in running the world. It's against our belief system that we control the world. Circumcision. So the Greeks idealized the beauty of the physical form, particularly the male body, as they can see in so many of their sculptures. The idea that Jews would be willing to mar the body, to cut their body, was disgusting and outrageous for them. Right? So Ramam says the reason for that is to show that our impulses are in our control. Just like a person can circumcise themselves physically, they can circumcise themselves spiritually as well. That's the reason. So the Greeks did not want this self-control. They were anti-self-control. Their gods never had self-control, and they never had self-control as a value system. So the Greeks had uh, immoral gods, and they did not believe that we can control ourselves in that direction. A person shouldn't control themselves according to them. So, so that's the basics of the clash of cultures. Uh, I just want to sum it up a little bit. Um, so the military victory of Hanukkah was short-lived. Within a century, Israel was again under foreign rule, the Romans. So here we are, we're celebrating Hanukkah, but it's not the physical victory that we're celebrating so much as the spiritual victory, which is the reason why today we celebrate Hanukkah by lighting a candle. There's no military flyovers, there's no military tank parades and, and other parades. We leave that for Independence Day. Hanukkah is not a day of celebration of physical victory because the physical victory did not last. It lasted for about 100 years and then, the, and then the Romans walked in, took us over. So the real battle was not against an empire, but it was against the culture. The, the battle was a spiritual battle uh, against a different culture, battle of assimilation, which is still going on. That's why Hanukkah is so important today. It's the battle of um, assimilation to a bigger culture. And that's the battle that we have to win. That's the message that Hanukkah has. So though we were, we were later to suffer devastating defeats at the hand of the Romans, the rabbis, by opening schools, all right, the rabbis opened schools, free schools for the masses of children at that time, the age of 12, up to the age of 12, they were in school. They all knew how to read and write. They started learning the oral law. And because of that, we survived 2,000 years of exile, which is amazing to think that uh, society survives in exile in foreign countries, and we keep our religion alive. That's amazing. So what Hanukkah really teaches us is to defend a country, you need an army. 
But to defend a civilization, you need schools, you need education. In the short run, battles are won by weapons. In the long run, battles are won by ideas. And how we pass these ideas on from generation to generation. And uh, Hanukkah comes from the same word as the word chinuch, which is education. It can also be uh, Hanukkah Tamizbeach, which is a dedication of the, of the temple and the altar, which is what the Maccabees had to do. When the Greeks defiled the altar, defied our, our temple, they had to rededicate it, which is Hanukkah. But the idea of Hanukkah being a holiday of chinuch, of education, is the critical idea for our time. And so, what is the real clash of civilizations. Let's just recap. The Greeks believed in aesthetics, physical beauty and strength rather than moral and spiritual beauty. They did not believe in a single loving God, but rather in destiny. They gave the world the concept of tragedy. Greek tragedy, it doesn't matter how hard you work, it doesn't matter how hard you strive, it doesn't matter what you want to achieve your own goals, destiny wins in the end. That's what the Greek system was, destiny wins in the end. And, and more depressing than that, Life has no ultimate purpose, and especially the Epicurus. Their purpose was have fun and enjoy and keep on eating and eating and eating, just have enjoyment and because life has no meaning. So they had life, no purpose in life. It's amazing. The stark contrast, Judaism believes we are here because Hashem created us. And that's a big mystery. Why did Hashem create us? And the answer is Hashem created us in order to give of his goodness to others. God is a God of love. He wants to give. And we have to also be like that, give us as well. So we're here, we have a mission, and he acts, he acts in history to our benefit. Hashem acts in history to our benefit, he wants to give to us, and through this love we discover meaning and purpose of life. Judaism tells us the world can and will become better than it is today. And this is the idea of tikkun olam, redeeming the world, making the world a better place. And it's interesting, all these uh, companies building these vaccines, Pfizer has this Jewish CEO, and uh, what's the Moderna has this Jewish uh, Israeli scientist uh, doctor over there in Jerusalem, <laughs> all the Jews involved in Tikkun Olam, trying to help the world. The Hanukkah lights a symbol of the survival of the Jewish people and Jewish culture. There is a hope and faith in the future because when the situation looked impossibly bleak, the Maccabees refused to give up hope in the future and fought to triumph over darkness. So the real victory we celebrate is how the Jews refused to give in to the seduction of Greek culture, which was the antithesis of Torah values. Today, thousands of years later, when the ancient Greeks are gone, the Jewish people continue to thrive. Now, at least some of us continue to thrive. Uh, that's why it's good to live in Israel, because even the most ignorant Jew in Israel knows he's Jewish, living in a Jewish country. Star of David, he knows the holidays, everything closes on the holidays, and he knows there's a prayer book, he knows there's a God. So it's very important to have this concepts on us. And uh, interesting, this is a, a fight that's going on today as well between Jewish culture and foreign cultures around us. Many Jews are losing the battle, there's assimilation, and we have to just make sure that we pass on our torch, our lights to our children. I'm gonna wish you all a happy and healthy Hanukkah, and we'll meet again next week.